Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with Benjamin Catley Richardson, a generosity coach and podcast host in his own right. We touch on a number of things in this episode, including his journey from working in the public and commercial sectors into the third sector, how mental health has moved him in the past to act, and what he does as a generosity coach to give charities a hand with introspection and reflection. The episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work For Good. Work For Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good. Through their fundraising platform, they offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners and sole traders, who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Benjamin Catley Richardson. delighted to be joined by Benjamin Catley Richardson, generosity coach and podcast host. Benjamin, welcome to Charity Chats. Thank you very much. It's an honour to be invited, having only you know, started listening to the podcast a few weeks ago and then suddenly I'm here. It's very exciting. Well, we're, we're very excited to have you here. And I think, you know, looking at the work that you're doing, I think, you know, it's going to be a, very relevant uh, to a lot of our audience, this. So I suppose the first question for you is, Benjamin, could you start by telling our audience who you are and what has led you to do what you currently do? Sure. So I'm Benjamin and my background is in stakeholder management, stakeholder comms. I've done copywriting, I've done marketing, bits and pieces. But now I've just launched a group coaching course for small charities. And my path to that has been a bit winding, really, but it started... A few years ago, when um, having gone self-employed about five or six years ago for the first time, what I was trying to do, having been in, worked in institutions, so I worked at local government level, higher education, I know the kind of the intensity of those environments, how you're rolling all the time, spinning plates. And I knew that one of the things that I always wanted to do was to do more of the strategy, more of the planning before the doing, so you only really do what, you know, is going to be useful. And then the evaluation at the end of it. So you know what to do next time. I mean, that's the goal, isn't it? You know, we always talk about that being the plan, Mm. but it's very hard in those pressured environments to to keep that up. So I started doing some of that. I was doing strategic copywriting for a while, and then um, I was working with a branding agency um, for a couple of years. And I joined them just before COVID. So we had a book of people who were ready to go. We were doing brand strategy. So, you know, looking out into the future, a couple of years time longer for how you're going to develop your business. And then suddenly, obviously, that went off the edge of the cliff. And, you know, from the beginning of of COVID, really, it was clear that people couldn't think beyond six weeks, let alone six months and no way six years. You know, they Mm -hmm. couldn't have that time frame, totally understandably. Now, I spent also a lot of the time talking to people and talking to people from charities as well, who would often say, oh, you know, I know businesses have money to throw at this and businesses have money to spend on marketing. And the truth was in those early times that they didn't. And that has not changed. So the approach now from SMEs is is completely different to where it used to be. And probably righteously, it is now much more of a focus on ROI. I put a pound in, I get 10 pounds out. 
as uh, Alan Deeb, I think it is, that says that marketing ought to be more like a vending machine than a one-armed bandit. You know, you really ought to know what you can get from it. Absolutely fine. But if you're trying to get people to think long-term, that obviously creates huge problems mm-hmm. because it's a conversation they don't really want to have. Then I started to notice that actually charities, although they give themselves, you know, a bit of a hard time, they understand branding, marketing, and long-term planning more than businesses in most cases. Oh, wow. Okay. And I think that's because ultimately you have a reason for being, don't you? Mm. That goes beyond money, that goes beyond just making money. Mm. You've got a purpose, and that purpose is always driving you forwards. And it's always larger than the work today, the work tomorrow, the work for the next six months. It's always a big cause. Mm. So you're accustomed to working in the long term. And I think charities understand reputation much more and stakeholder management much more. And those things really are related to brand and marketing, which is really about building communities, building mm. people, you know, relationships with people, you know, that, that need something that you have. And I spent all this time through the pandemic trying to convince essentially businesses to look long term. And actually, you know what, Sam, at some point I was going, I don't even want to work with these people because they don't share my values. Mm. I don't feel like them. I don't look at the world like them. And I don't actually want to spend time with them. Mm. Perfectly nice people, but they weren't like-minded people. And then I was at an event uh, for a charity called um, Alex's Wish, uh, which is local here in Leicestershire. And... um, they we we'd help them the agency i was working with we'd help them with some messaging support and they'd run away with it but so exciting they'd been so excited to have some clarity to what they were doing Mm. and we went along to this supporters lunch and the energy was just amazing really i hate the word too much but inspiring you know i was moved yeah i was almost moved to tears at one point because it was like this the word that we did has helped them get to here Mm. and that event really basically said to me these are your people and especially talking to people at the event, you know, finding that I had a lot of um, alignment in terms of the way I thought with people that were there. And then I started a period of research into uh, the third sector, into nonprofits, and just discovered all the people I've been working with in the past mm-hmm. actually were now in charities or connected to charities or were okay. trustees of charities. Yeah. So stuff like that, when you see that happening, it has to flag up in your mind that this is my, as Seth Godin would say, this is my tribe. These are the people who think like I do. These are the people who see the world like I do. Mm. And those are the people you should be working with because you do share that, that approach. So after going through a period of market research towards the end of last year, I started to see some of the problems, some of the ways I could help and an area that I could really fit into this idea of small charities, kind of, below 250, certainly below 500K turnover. Mm-hmm. And the challenges that they were facing kind of played into what I thought I could do to help. And so I then spent most of this year, I was running uh, fortnightly free coaching sessions. So every other Thursday, I had all my morning booked out, people dropping in, spent an hour with them or sometimes with a group, working through what they were challenged by, working through basically the the problem of marketing, which mm. is the idea that you think you've got to have a huge advertising budget, a huge budget to do anything of any impact, and trying to find ways that I could help them. And then about four or five weeks ago, I was in a conversation with two people from a charity, 
and they were talking about what they really needed. And I realized I had everything in place, that I'd done the research, I'd had the conversations, I had a series of tools and processes. And so I just started talking to them about this idea for a course I'd had, and they were like, when are you doing it? So I was like, oh, okay, now. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are. So I'm now, it's launching on the 30th of May. I've had a really great response. So I I opened um, applications about three or four weeks ago, slightly less than that, I think actually. I've got four now confirmed out of the six people that I would really love to have on board. Um, And yeah, we're ready to go. So really looking forward to it. During the pandemic, I guess there were these kind of senses of, is the world coming to an end? Uh, You know, do I need to look at my my life choices? Do I need to think about what is actually meaningful to me? You know, there was more kind of conversations around spending time with family and friends, although in a lot of cases we couldn't because we were locked down. But, you know, was there any kind of element of being influenced by your own personal kind of pandemic experience in terms of putting your your time and your focus more into these these causes you're working with now? Absolutely. I mean, in many ways, I actually... Uh, kind of started the process a few years earlier so one of the reasons well the main reason I went self-employed was I was on the commute to work in Gloucester and um, I was the primary witness for a really serious road accident Uh, not to go into the details but I was basically signed off I wasn't hurt but I was right Mm. in the middle of it I was signed off I didn't go back and when I did go back after about three or four months um, it was clear it's just not going to work And um, me and the people around me, people I love, we'd always been quite what we might call dreamers or, you know, people who are trying to look forward to where you might go. And always had that part of me. And then this moment of going, well, I can't go back to work, created a gap where I could actually think, well, what, what does that mean? What does work mean? And I had a lot of support at the time. So I had a lot of space to think and, um, and room to kind of manoeuvre my life and, and then I landed a couple of bits of work and then started developing, you know, what do I actually want to do and moved into this strategic copywriting angle. But one of the first things I got actually was some work with Derby Book Festival. And, and that was really exciting because I could come in to something that was happening. You know, mm. like I think that element of charities is also that there's always stuff going on. It's no coincidence that charities and events go together because they've both got that world of, you know, just moving as fast as you can, trying to get something to happen and not kind of waiting around for the world to do something. And so I worked with the book festival and I could just see that part of the provision they were getting from the marketing people they'd worked with in the past was pretty basic, was just like, here's a Facebook post and you've got this many Facebook likes. Nobody was really drilling down into what impact that had. What did it mean? Did you sell any tickets? So I really loved doing that with with the festival, and that was obviously a charitable cause in itself. When we hit the pandemic, I'd already had that thinking about I want to work in this in a space that you know inspires me, something to do with impact. And at the beginning, I thought I could do that for businesses. And like I said, the trouble is, impact is a long term commitment. Mm. It doesn't happen overnight. There are some great studies. Um, if you want to look up to them, uh, the long and the short of it is a really good white paper. And it's academic study basically about if you focus only on immediate results, you are only going to get a limited sort of return. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll be able to see it in six months, but the return will be very limited. Whereas if you look beyond six months, if you look out and beyond next year or so, essentially brand building is what mm-hmm. they kind of call it, which is really reputation management, right? You start to raise the ceiling on those results. So after six months, after 12 months, after two years, the immediate response that you get gets big, better and better because you've built the space for it to exist in. And that's about impact, you know, building the impact, building reputation, building a point for people to go, they're the guys who do this. And so when I then did a little bit of uh, charity work through the pandemic, in a way to keep my eye in, because <laughs> part of it was, it wasn't really happening on the business side, let's do something of any use. And it was just noticing that I think um, on the whole charities, I feel responded better in the uh, in the pandemic. They responded better partly because they just had to. So Alex's Wish was a primarily events-based charity before the pandemic. So it had no choice but to do something different. And I know a lot of businesses were like that, but one of the things that charities can't rely on, the businesses almost always do, is referrals. Mm. You know, no charity can run on solely referrals, whereas there are, you know, 90% of businesses would say that referrals are their largest kind of income. So I just saw that I wanted to make an impact. That's what drove me. And here are a group of people who are driven to make an impact and they're making decisions and taking action based on that, not just talking about it. And it was just exciting, like I said, at that event to see when I feel a charity, which is driven by impact, when they get over an obstacle, when they get to something and they can actually run with something, the messaging say that this charity had the passion that comes through is unbelievable. And that's what I wanted to be alongside. And I really feel that's where impact comes from, is, is that passion. Whereas businesses, you still, you're always going to be curtailed, if you like, that passion curtailed by the fact that you're a business. You have, either you have shareholders or you have a bottom line, or, you know, there may be these kind of constructs in charities, but ultimately in business, that's what comes first. And I just, it was really, really clear to me during that pandemic that, yeah, that's the world I couldn't exist in. I mean, that's why I've called my podcast and the course, we're not selling shoes. Right. Because we can't, as charities, we can't take that mindset on. It's just, it's not going to serve us. really interesting i suppose you know we we hear a lot in um seems to come around once a year or once every uh few months uh, there's there's something either um in the organizations we're working in or or um more nationally around you know charities professionalizing and you know and i've certainly had uh, countless um kind of board members in the past or various other kind of uh, consultants or whoever say you know we need to professionalize we need to be more corporate orientated i suppose there's some good things in that in terms of being more efficient maybe some efficiency making but i suppose also from what you're saying it made me think that we we also have to recognize that we're quite a different uh, kettle of fish than uh, than the commercial sector right and we shouldn't necessarily try and be them no i think that's it it's you know but charities are like you say charities are always told think like a business think like a business you've got to think and you know when you get up to uh, probably above the 500k, certainly the 1 million 
turnover level. As a charity, you've got to you've got much more money to play with, obviously, and um, which means much more responsibility. So you need people to hold that responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. Um, that division of restricted and unrestricted funding, you know, becomes even more important to, to prove and to, you know you've got so many people watching you basically and then um on the other side of it you've also by that point you've got people you've got more people so you've got to have hr so there are definite structures that charities must have which echo the approach of a business and again i was just speaking to a charity uh, this morning that's about the 1.5 million turnover they've got a um a corporate engagement officer they've got somebody who pretty much takes on most of the marketing they've got people they've got teams they've got strategies so they've got all that stuff and you have to think like a business in inverted commas in order to be like you said most more efficient but this is what drew me to the people in the smaller area is is first of all because that kind of advice be like a business is pretty inappropriate because there are no businesses that are run like small charities Nobody sets up a uh, business in the same way that a small charity is set up. You know, people just don't do it. So that early stage, which sometimes charities never get out of, for good or worse, it's not like a business. So there aren't the same kind of decisions to be made and thoughts to be had about, about business operations, certainly not corporate operations. But at the same time, I do feel that businesses ought to kind of take their own you know word and kind of look at actually they should be operating more like businesses in many ways you know relying upon referrals as 80 or 90 percent of your income is is crazy really if anybody goes forward from this point on and thinks that that is a viable business model then they're going to find another pandemic they're going to find another issue that's going to floor them i was actually literally at a um a presentation about two weeks before lockdown hit by a guy called Ben Potter, he's an absolutely fantastic um, consultant. And he was giving a presentation about exactly this, positioning your agency, he was talking marketing agencies, positioning your agency so that you get the right kind of work, moving away from the wholly reliant on referral model. And there were people in the audience who'd run agencies for 20 years who were rolling their eyes. We've heard all this before, referrals works for us. Except then, of course, two, three weeks later, it all fell off the edge of a cliff, like I was saying with us. And I think that's when you actually look at how charities really ought to kind of exist as an exemplar of good marketing behavior, of good behavior, because they know, like I said, they know that reputation is important and, they, and therefore they understand the reality of marketing. And then when you're in a small charity and really the thrust is what difference can we make? What difference and impact can we have every single day? That necessarily comes before, well, obviously it comes before profit, but it necessarily comes before income. You know, there's a difficult point probably at that 500k level where you have to negotiate, we need more income to have more impact. But in those you know, kind of early stages, that low level, if you think like a business, you're going to be going out and kind of succumbing to that stereotype of, chuggers on the street and begging goals by email and you know that's what people hate about charities mm. and so ultimately a business has to be run on transactions you know transactions are really what keep us apart that's the whole goal right of transactions is to make sure that we we don't have to get involved too much in each other's lives and that's the antithesis of a charity of what it really should be doing 
and building a community and building relationships. And you can't build relationships based on transactions. It has to be through what I call generosity. It has to be through putting something out into the world, you know, that, that benefits somebody and asking nothing in return. And ultimately, through some of my interviews I did last year, somebody said, you know, we don't do marketing. We talked about what they did. They write books, they give them away. They go into schools, they do workshops. They do sessions for um, parents in um, community centers. Now that's all marketing. And businesses could learn a huge amount from how charities do that. But they don't call it marketing. So I said, well, you know, that, that's, that's what it is. So you look at the service delivery you're doing, what other service delivery activities could you be making that actually also have an awareness benefit? And what this lady said after that, well, yeah, because awareness always leads to income. Knowledge of you, nobody can donate to you unless they know that you exist. I saw a post that you put on uh, LinkedIn, which I really liked. It was titled, The Now I Use It More Often, It Feels More Natural Smile. Mental health, you know, it's something that I think I think most people would probably agree that you know there's been much more attention given to mental health and well-being, certainly since the pandemic, which is fantastic. And I think a lot of the forward-thinking progressive charities have brought that in a much bigger way into how they operate and how they behave. It, what what led you to write that article on LinkedIn? To do this, I go back again even further. Um, I was commuting into Oxford. I used to work at Oxford Brooks. And um, I was commuting into Oxford. Anybody who knows Oxford knows that the ring road is a nightmare and can just drain the happiness out of you even before you've got <laughs> into work. And I was in a particularly bad queue, particularly bad day. Mm. And I looked out my window and there was a guy walking past and he had the most incredible smile on his face. I mean, it, it, even to think about it now, it's, it's affected me that long. We're talking more than 10 years. I carry this smile with me. It brightened my day. He was just walking up the road. He had a, it wasn't smug or pleased with himself or anything like that. It was just like, I hate to say the word pure because it you know, sounds very kind of fey to say it, but it was pure and it was honest and it was genuine and it was beautiful. Wow. And it just put this energy into the world that I just drank in. And I just felt, if only I could have said thank you to that guy. He has no idea. He's given a gift out into the world. He has no idea that his openness and that generosity of that smile has changed at least my life for the better. Mm -hmm. And I've had this ticking along in my head for, for years and years and years. And then just recently, when I started throwing myself into this idea of um, working with charities and tentatively calling myself a generosity coach, and just that idea of what, what can you do that can put good into the world, that can, you know, continue to put good into the world. Um, I came up with this idea, okay, what can I actually do with LinkedIn, which is, can be a very kind of dry uh, location. What can I put out there that might help? And so I started trying with statements about, you know, you can feel this way, it's okay to feel this way. And about three or four statements in, I got somebody, first time this has ever happened to me. It's like marketing finally working. <laughs> I, I put this message out and somebody messaged me and said, thank you, that's what I needed. I needed to hear that. And that sort of clicked with this idea of that smile that I saw all that, because mm. that smile was what I needed at that time. So for about, I think it's about five or six weeks now, I've been posting every Friday a smile, 
of me and I'm trying to not be vain with it. So I'm trying to just take one. <laughs> Sometimes I look a bit daft. So I might take a couple, but I'm trying to make it so it's a genuine smile like this guy and basically trying to repeat that smile that that guy had. So what are you, and, what are you thinking about to make that genuine? Are you thinking about certain things or is it, is it more of a kind of a physical exercising of the, the, the cheeks? Or? <laughs> well, well, I guess that's where it comes to this post, which is, um, mm. so I've been doing it, as I say, for about five or six weeks by that. And then in that one, it was just like, this is, this is getting easier. And I realized, you know, I am smiling more at people. I'm smiling and saying hello to people on my walks. I'm smiling more. I'm trying to smile as much as possible when I'm driving places, like doing the school run with a smile on your face. You know, it's like <laughs> you can actually just bring happiness into the world like that. Again, it sounds kind of, um, you know, easy, <laughs> but it actually isn't. And that's what I wanted to do with the post was then break down. Yeah, I'm smiling. But here are the, what are we like? 10 things here are the 10 things that i do on a regular basis mm. they are the ingredients of this smile because i'm not just smiling and a smile can hide things as well but mm. a genuine smile i think has many things behind it and not to go through the whole list but like i do an affirmation routine every single morning before i get out of bed and you know to be honest it's what gets me out of bed and having been through things, you know, in the past sort of my own mental kind of well-being challenges where actually getting out of bed was, was like, what is the point? Mm-hmm. You know, get, getting out of bed with that positive attitude has changed everything. Exercising every day. I write a gratitude journal and I do this thing called the artist's way, which is like morning pages every morning. And I've been doing those now for a good three or four months. And the change is dramatic. And even if I love the placebo effect. Here we go. Here's another tangent. So yeah. I love the placebo effect, right? <laughs> yeah. Because the thing that I love most about the placebo effect is that it works even if you know it's a placebo mm, effect. Mm. Like a hug to a small child makes them feel better, even if it doesn't heal the the you know the bloody wound on their knee. It's a placebo works even if you know it's a placebo. And actually, all of this stuff about gratitude and you know, manifesting, all that kind of stuff, whatever you go for, the critical thing is if you do something every single day that makes you feel happier, mm. how can that be a bad thing? How can creating happiness, which then puts happiness into the world, how can that be a bad thing? Even if you know that the processes you're doing to create that happiness aren't magic and aren't going to change the physical nature of the world, but if they make you feel happy, then by Lord, you know, that's, that's a great thing. You should go ahead with it. And you know that they work, even though you know that they're almost a contrivance like a placebo. And I just, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't had anybody get back in touch with me, but I was like, if you read this list, if you see this smile and then you read this list, which actually is a bit of hard work (laughs) to get to this smile, but it's worth it. If you want to know more about, uh, you know, the the artist's way or, or the gratitude journal I do or the, small I said small consistent acts of practical generosity that I've been doing all year so these two weekly um, uh, sessions for charities were one of them but during February I just made the decision after um, there was a whole thing about food banks and um, the inflation on food and it was going on a big kind of Twitter discussion going on and what really actually touched me was the stories of uh, period poverty mm. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've known about food banks, as we all have, for years. But I've never been moved 
admittedly, I confess now, to do anything about it, to donate anything about it. This story that I picked up on um, just moved me so much that I donated, but also then throughout February, and, and I continue to do it now, I every time I went into a shop, I bought a um, some period you know, uh, product like um, sanitary towels, or whatever, I bought that and gave it to the food bank um, box that was in the shop. And the truth is, it made me feel good. It made me feel happy. It actually unblocked some parts of me. And I felt like I was doing something good. And that made me feel good. And I, I don't see a problem with that. You know, if there's something you can do every day that makes you feel good, you should do it. And that is why I was trying to break down this idea of, yeah, I've been doing this for a while. Um, here's the smile, but there's actually a lot going on behind it. And even a smile isn't as just as simple as, you know, just, just lighting up and going, oh, yeah, I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> and in Mental Health Awareness Week, I mean, you know, what better time to kind of really put a lampshade on that. post that you mentioned uh, about period poverty that that moved you obviously you're you know marketing you know you understand how um people are trying to build relationships with people so you know was it a time and place thing or was it something in that post that moved you was, was it clever techniques ultimately i think it was the story that connected with me and i know that's also something that's said often to charities tell the story tell the story mm -hmm. but it was about the story not just a story and it was um, Jack Munro was the, the person who was, who was tweeting um, about the food banks and stuff like that. And then reading her stuff then led me to uh, watch a video um, that they'd done uh, for TED, I think it was, a while ago. And it was, about, it was basically just her sharing stories about people who go to food banks. And I'll be honest, I was in tears. You know, it, it cut me. I am an incredibly privileged, white, nearly middle aged man i have everything going for me you know i've got i've got a home here i've got house uh, you know to live in i've got a car to drive in i've got money i might not have loads of money but i can eat and i can choose the other night i just went oh i have fish and chips and the weird thing is is that food poverty never moved me it never connected with me but hearing the stories that that jack was talking about and especially things like people not being able to wash their hands People not being able to put nappies on their babies apart from making them makeshift. And then obviously people, you know, women having to use socks uh, during their period. And you just, how can you not be kind of cut by that and feel like, God, you know, I have everything and it's not fair. I have a huge privilege and part of that privilege is responsibility mm. to, to reach out and, you know, try and make the world a better place for other people. And I know at the same time, that's the same as for food, but I guess I could think about going hungry more than I could think about having dirty hands. Something about that story connected with me and it just has not let go. I mean, I'm, you know, kind of moved just thinking about it now because people are going through it every day. And I think this is the, this is the thing about, um, about impact and about telling stories is that, if you try and tell a bland coverall story, mm. you're, you're never going to get anywhere. There are authors out there who just do pulp and just do basic stuff. And, you know, yeah, people lap it up, the mainstream lap it up. It's unthreatening. It's kind of what it is. Fine. But there are also 
the best authors who have a specific niche, a specific type of story, a specific way of telling something that is so engaging to a certain audience that people can't get enough of it. I, I will watch The Big Short regularly because it speaks to me, but I know other people uh, will only remember it for, I won't use the exact language here, but we'll only remember it for the time when the guy goes into the meeting and tells people to F off. Yeah. You know, it spoke to me is on that a different Steve level. Carell's character, is it? No, it's um, it's the other guy. It's his second in command. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, basically wa- yeah. walks into the meeting room and says, um, uh, yeah, he says to F off. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's a big moment. It's like a ha-ha moment. But there's so much in that in that um, film that also spoke to me about everything else was going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. But that's what happens is stories resonate with different people on different levels. It's why you've got passionate fans of the Spice Girls, say, but also passionate fans of people like Bat for Lashes. They're completely different. You can like them, but you might be passionate about one thing and you can't stand anything else. And one of the telling points is also um, if people are starting to dislike what you do, if people start to tell you it's not good or almost inappropriate or there's something wrong with it, you're probably going in the right direction because if some people hate what you do, there will be almost an equivalent number of people who will absolutely love it. And if you can get people to love what you do, whether it's for money or satisfaction or whatever, you know, that is how you gain a reputation. You don't gain a reputation by just doing the milk toast option, by just doing what everybody else is doing. You gain a reputation by telling a story that makes a certain group of people sit up and not be able to keep it to themselves. Mm. So I've told that about um, Jack Munro's uh, sharing on Twitter and me. I haven't wanted, it's almost a humble brag. Oh, I went in and bought all this stuff for the food bank. I don't want to go down that route, but I've been telling people that that was the position for me. If suddenly I was affected by this one thing mm. because it affected me that deeply. And to do that, you also have to make a decision to, to ignore a lot of people at the beginning, at least to say to a lot of people, our appeal, our story will just be more noise in the background. But there will be a group of people that, and this is again, Seth Godin calls it your tribe uh, or your minimum viable market or whatever kind of phrase you want to use. But basically how, how can you find a small viable enough group of people who really think like you and who resonate with what matters to you and what you do? because those are the people who are really gonna shout about you. Those are the people who are gonna care about what you do. And you need to find that group of early adopters of like-minded people to really make any kind of impact beyond the sort of um, just you know average kind of level. If you want to move beyond your own network, if you wanna get noticed, there has to be a reason for you to be noticed. And you know this is true for businesses, probably more so than charities, it's safe not to be noticed and it's safe not to upset people. And it's safe to say, Oh, we do everything for everybody, but you're never going to break out of that small bubble. If you like, you're never going to cross that awareness gap unless you do take a few risks and really double down on appealing to that group of people that when you stand up and tell the story that matters to you, it matters to them as well. And one last thing, a story is never about you the charity. And this is the other thing is people often say, tell stories, tell stories, but not how. Mm-hmm. And the structure of a story always has a hero, an obstacle, you know, an arc. 
the crucial thing I think for charities uh, realizing this idea of approaching a story is that the story is not your story. It's not about you. You are the MacGuffin. You are the prop. You are the supporting character. However important you are to the story, the story is not yours. The story is the people that you help, the beneficiaries, mm-hmm. the people that gain something from you. Tell their story, talk about what they benefited from, and you will be telling essentially your story. But they have to be the hero. They have to be the protagonist. Otherwise, you make it all about you. And that's what every other business in the world is doing. We have this, we have that, and nobody wants to know. And I suppose generally, you know, there's there's this notion of, uh, certainly if you're writing a letter to a supporter, you're talking about them, aren't you? So you're talking about them and the the third party that you're working with. And, you know, really, you can, you can count the number of... Uh, we or eyes and uh, you should double that in terms of views and you know thank yous i suppose yeah absolutely i mean and that is in itself a generous act hmm. right the whole process of choosing an audience that needs something and understanding that need and then putting them first and doing the emotional labor to figure out how you can fit in with them and, and how they can be the priority and, and the protagonist hmm. and then reaching out to them I mean, this is basically what my course is is built around and what my approach to generosity is built around is there are so few people out there who are doing this because it's a big, generous act and it requires trust and bravery and confidence that you will automatically stand out. Somebody I was working with not so long ago, we were doing a checklist, like page basically, that they could give out to um, groups to help um, them to run that group inclusively. This is basically where their charity kind of worked. And she was saying, well, but there, there will be lists on the internet. There will be advice on the internet. There is everything on the internet. Yeah, somebody's always done it. Mm. The generous act, the generosity that you're doing, the thing that will get you noticed and remembered is that you didn't just put it up on a website and wait for them to find it. You found an audience, you understand what they need, and you went to them. You gave them something, you left them with it, and you said, that's why I'm here. Now I'm done. You go away. You don't need me anymore. You've, I've given you what you need. You're welcome. I, this, this gives me pleasure. Hmm. It's a huge, generous act. And just that, that method of reaching out, it doesn't almost doesn't matter what you give as long as it's relevant. It's the reaching out. It's the actual, um, you know, giving something, finding somebody who needs something and giving it to them. That's true generosity. And, you know, in, in many ways, it's a win-win because you will feel fantastic for doing it. And I truly believe that in the fullness of time, that's where relationships come from. And then, as we've said, awareness always leads to income. Benjamin Catley Richardson, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. It's been my pleasure. It really has. big thank you there to Benjamin Catley Richardson for sharing his knowledge and expertise with us. Speaking with Benjamin, it struck me that so many of us come into the sector following a realisation that we can and should be working to change the status quo and improve our communities and our society at large. This idealism is not misplaced in a sector that largely runs on goodwill and hope. Mental health is of course crucial for us to work at our best, but in a sector where many of us are regularly exposed to the front line of need, plus the challenges that come from working in a sector relatively poor in time and resource, our mental health is under 
regular pressure. Benjamin seems very conversant with these challenges and it was fascinating to hear more about the tools he uses to keep mentally fit. Affirmation routines, gratitude journals and smiling are some of the tools that can help us to stay present, be thankful and keep going through the difficult times. While charities need to find ways of being as efficient as possible and professional in how they meet compliance and best practice, charities not businesses and shouldn't aim to be. Charities need to be professional in their approach, but not at the cost of the emotive enthusiasm that led them to be set up in the first place, and which also enables them to show empathy to those they seek to support and keep them doing their work efficiently. While businesses run on transactions, charities need to run on relationships and the building of mutual generosity. How do charities win hearts and minds and understand who is most likely to support their cause? Benjamin spoke about an example where he, is moved, he was moved by an article he read to change his behaviour and support a cause that he would not have supported before. How do charities create this magic? Something about our stories needs to connect with those who are more likely to support our cause. We can't get to everyone, we shouldn't aim to, we need to find those who are more likely to want to make an impact in the area of our work. One thing that Benjamin said that struck a chord with us was, it's the reaching out, the actual giving something, finding someone who needs something and giving it to them. That's true generosity. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work For Good. Work For Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good. Through their fundraising platform, they offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners, and sole traders who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. Also, I'd like to thank Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Aximit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. Forrester Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.